Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, welcome everyone. We are so honored to have Dr. Noam Weissman here today to teach A Nation That Dwells Alone, Questions and Implications. Noam Weissman is the Executive Vice President at Open Door Media and leads the content across all divisions, including their YouTube channel called Unpacked, which just crossed over 100,000 subscribers. He's the host of the of two unpacked podcasts. One is called Unpacking Israeli History, and the other is called The Power of. Noam earned a doctorate in educational psychology from USC in 2017 and wrote his dissertation on Israel education and identity development. Today, the session will explore the age-old question about the ontological nature of the Jewish people. Are the Jewish people separate and apart from the rest of the world? Is Baum's prophecy a promise, a description, or a prescription? In looking at modern Jewish history, how do we explore this question and what does it mean for us today? Over to you, Dr. Weissman. Pam, thank you so much. And a big thank you to Rav Shmuley for inviting me to have this conversation. So good to see everyone here. And I guess across across the globe. So uh, excited to learn with everyone and to really go through a, a question that I think uh, is fascinating. It's really fascinating. For me, the opportunity to learn about this and to teach about the, the this, this topic, I view this as an exploration in many ways. Today's learning, and this is my style, I really want to really frame as a reflection, as an exploration, as uh, in many ways a description, and less so, um, even though the topic has a political nature to it in many ways, um, and we'll go through that, we'll go through that. I want us to kind of defang this conversation, if we can, uh, to have fun and to you know elevate the conversation, but on the other hand, to lower the temperature about the different issues that I'm gonna be bringing up. Because I'm gonna be bringing up some serious, intense topics, but let's view them as learners, let's view them as an exploration, and um, let's have fun. That's what I. That's what I really want to do. So I'm going to get this party started right now. Let me share my screen. And um, this is the topic. The topic is. Everyone see it? Everyone good? Thumbs up. Great. So the topic is, and you see the play on words here. Bamidbar twenty three nine, a verse that dwells alone. So we're going to be going through that. But before we go through that, this is just my style in general. There's something called Daf Aleph. If you haven't heard of Daf Aleph, now you are hearing of Daf Aleph. You got to get to know, we got to get to know each other. And I apologize that I'm not going to be able to really ask you so many questions about yourselves, but you got to get to know who you're talking to, who you're learning with right now. So the reason it's called Daf Aleph is the great Hasidic masters used to point out that every Talmud starts out with Daf Bet, with the second letter. But why would the first page be the second letter? So don't give me the publishing answers, the academic answers, the way it worked, I know. But the real reason, the reason that means a lot to me is learning can never take place independent of a relationship. You gotta start with Daf Aleph and Daf Aleph is before the first page, which is Daf Bet, right? It's before. So before we get into the meaty topic, 
let's just, what's my background? So my background is spent years in a day school education, first as a teacher, then as a high school principal in Los Angeles, a school called Shalhevet. Then as I was doing that, I was developing curriculum for years. Uh, all different areas fascinated me to really think differently about how Jewish education could be done. So I became the founder uh, and, the, and the director of a program called Lahav that explored Jewish philosophy, Talmud, Tanakh, uh, education differently. And then finally, I went to University of Southern California to get my doctorate while I was principal. And I, my focus, just so you know, was not initially Israel education. The reason I wrote about Israel education was because I saw a real uh, gap, I would say, in terms of how excellent the learning that the Jewish community does and, and did with regard to Talmud education and Tanakh education, I think Jewish philosophy in many ways, but Israel, there's just a gap. Um, and it didn't seem to follow a great methodology that the Jewish people had developed over time. And so I set out and wrote my dissertation uh, at the urgings of, of my chair, her name is Kim Harabayashi, um, and she's not Jewish, but she just thought that, you know, this is a really, you're right, Noam, this is an important topic. And then I took over at Open Door Media. Initially, they brought me in, it was called Jerusalem U, uh, and uh, they they uh, brought me in to be the head of education. And over the last couple of years, we transitioned from Jerusalem U to Open Door Media, and we have a bunch of different assets called Unpack. And then I became the executive vice president, overseeing all of the content across all the different divisions. That's my background. The most important thing about my background, and I should have shared a picture of this, is my, my wife, my partner, uh, Rezi Erich, um, who is uh, my partner in life, and um, our delicious three little children, Eyal, Liana, and Nisa, and um, uh, nine, six, and four years old. And that's really what animates me the most. But I want to show you a few more things about me, just so you get to know me a little bit, okay? Um, this is the Unpacking Israeli History Season 2. If you haven't seen it yet, you got to check it out. These are 10 really important historical topics, and we're going to get into some of this today. Um, but I've really been thinking a ton about this pasuk, this verse, when I'm making this content in general. And I didn't think so much about this verse that we're going to be studying today prior to the last couple of years. And that, that says a lot, and I'm going to get into that as well. I'm just giving you a little taste of where we're going to be going. So for anyone that wants to really study the history of Israel in an interesting way and have fun with it without, you know, having to go through 73 books, you can check out all these topics, subscribe to the podcast. And then we have our YouTube channel. If you haven't seen Unpacked's YouTube channel, worth checking out. Um, we now have, we just climbed over 100,000 subscribers, um, Baruch Hashem. And um, we have people really learning all of their Jewish and Israel content. If you've heard of Crash Course, if you've heard of, you know, you know, Origin of Everything, if you've heard of School of Life, all these different YouTube channels, this is where young people are. This is where they're going to learn. And we want to make sure that everyone, regardless of age, is able to get their content, um, regardless of their socioeconomic status, geographic location, um, you know, religious nomination, political affiliation. It doesn't matter. It's all on our YouTube channel, Unpacked. Same thing with the podcasts. So this is me. This is who you're learning with right now. This is what I do every single day with my, with, with my colleagues to help make sure that we can democratize. Just in many ways, like what, what, what Pam and Rabbi Shmuley are doing you know, you know, at VBM, which is to make democratize um, and give everyone access to, to Jewish education. And at the end of this, what we're going to do, I, my, my style is to go 100 miles an hour, by the way, so just FYI. Um, 
But uh, at the end of this, let's say in 40 minutes or so, or 35 minutes, depending, uh, like I want to have Q&A that I want to frame probably more as a, as a conversation. So the, what's the most important pasuk in the world? The most important pasuk. So there is a source, it's in Torah Kohanim, it's in chapter 4, Midrash 12, and there's a very famous debate. What is the most important verse in the entire Torah? What is the most important verse? Great question. What a fun question, a fun question to ask at a Shabbaton, a fun question to ask at a Shabbat dinner table. A great question. What's the most important? And, and someone will say, you know, it's like some uh, uh, totally... Um, abstract pasuk that like no one ever heard of and people are like that pasuk is the one that stands out to me you know there's so many different pasukim that that could stand out because thank god we have a we have an incredible source of wisdom uh which is which is our heritage but there was a great debate for me for years i would say i don't know my favorite pasuk is via hafta tager because that's a pasuk that says you have to love the other and it's about the way I see it, it's a call to transcend narcissism, right? So I love that pasuk. At other points in my life, I would say, no, it's the pasuk, you know, in the story of Sodom, where God says, you know, as a narrator, how dare I, can I really conceal myself from, from Abraham, from Abraham? I can't do that. I have moral culpability. Um, and, and, and there's an invitation. There's an invitation to be part of a relationship. Those two psukim, unfortunately or fortunately, or were not the debate in the Midrash. The four psukim that were debated is Vayikra 1918, which makes sense, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Makes a lot of sense. Everything else is just details, right? Then there's Bereshit 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made in his image. So it's the creation of human beings. It's the creation of human civilization. So, okay, that makes sense. That's the most important pasuk. I think Ben Zoma is the one who says in Devarim 6.4, no, you guys got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. What's the most important pasuk? The most important pasuk is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It makes a lot of sense, right? You know, like that is if I were to, to, to if I were to just like go to someone on the street, what's the most classic Jewish line? The one-liner in Judaism. I can hear it. I can hear where Ben Zoma is coming from. And then... And then we got Shemot 2939. I think that's where it is. And I spent a number of years in yeshiva. And this is the one that my rebbeim would come to. And they'd say, you know, this is the most important pasuk. And this is the one that wins out in the debate. And this is, The first lamb you shall sacrifice in the morning. The second lamb you shall sacrifice in the evening. Why is that the most important verse? Well, because it's about consistency. Day in, day out. Are you serving God in a meticulous way, in a non-romantic way, not because you're getting anything in return, but because this is what it means to be a Jew? And I think at different points in my life, these psukim animated me the most. And frankly, in the ones I said earlier, and frankly, it makes a lot of sense. They're great. They're amazing. They're amazing. And then as I got to a different point in my career, where I started thinking a lot more about the Jewish collective, this one verse kept on coming up over and over and over again. And that is the verse that gets all the credit today, Bamidbar 
So this is when Balak hires uh, Bilam, and he says, I want you to curse the Jewish people. Bilam says, I can't. I, I can only do, like, obviously there's a lot more to it. I can only do what, what God puts in my mouth. Like, that's all I got. These, how many words is it? You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those seven words that I bolded. I think when I think of the Jewish collective and I think of the reaction to this pasuk, I, I cannot think of a verse that has me thinking more right now as a as a member of the Jewish people. And you could look at the old uh, JPS, which was, I think, printed in 1917, is published then. And you can see just right there and then the dispute that emerges in terms of the translation. OJ, the, 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 the original JPS, lo, it is a people that shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. That is a prescription. Pay attention to the word shall there, right? It is a people that shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. The NJPS, 1962, this part was published, says it differently. There is people that dwells alone, not reckoned among the nations. And you'll notice that this is not a prescription. This is a description. What I always used to speak to my students about is every translation is interpretation. I mean, and it's so incredibly obvious here, right? It's so incredibly obvious that this Pasuk is being interpreted in radically different ways. Menachem Begin, and we're going to spend a lot of time on Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin said about this Pasuk, one does not have to be a mystic for the imagination to be stirred by such an improbable vision of a nation forever dwelling alone. It is not a starting, is it not a startlingly accurate prophecy of our Jewish people's existence in all of history? He's like, oh, this is remarkable. From 3,300 years ago, is there nothing more that is as dead on than this pasuk? And it's what animated Menachem Begin in so much, in such an intense way. So today I want to be exploring, or I want to bring you into what's been going through my kepi over the last three, four years. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to present these thoughts because that's what these are, they're, they're, they're thoughts um, that's just been going through my head over the last couple of years and about why this matters so much. When Rav Shmuley asked me what I want to speak about, I was like, you know what? This is what I'm thinking about right now. Um, I, want to be, I, want, I want to present on this topic and I'll see how it lands. So there are three different prisms um, through which we can explore this verse, theological and exegetical, and that's what we'll start with. Then we'll go into to what I'll call inyane dioma, um, and we'll be descriptive of, what, of what's going on here. And during this section, I ask that we actually do that. We, we focus on being descriptive as opposed to our uh, inserting our, you know, let's say our political positions. Um, and then number three, the position of Israel in, in international relations and seeing how uh, we could really be thinking about um, how this verse has animated Israeli policy, uh, which is a remarkable statement uh, because Israel is a, is a nation state. 
So let's start with theological and exegetical. And I'm playing, paying close attention to, to the clock. If you see me looking to the right, it's just me looking at the clock. Uh, and I want to go through four different parshanim. The first we'll do in English. Um, I apologize that the other three I couldn't find in English. Um, they're in Hebrew, but I will make sure to summarize or translate. The first is what I will describe is um, by Ramban, by Nachmanides, in the, who lived from 1194 to 1270, I believe, or right around then. And he views this verse as a promise. Um, it's a promise that Israel will remain independent. Israel will not vanquish. Israel will not fully assimilate into any other cultures. And it's what it is. It's a promise. And these are his words. And the meaning of Balaam, Bilam's words is that just as I see him now dwelling alone, so will he forever dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone. And he will always be at the head for no nation will ever prevail over him and cause him to perish. And he will never become assimilated to them, i.e. other nations. And it's a very endearing promise. Like if I'm a Jewish person and I'm living in the Middle Ages and remember they, our ancestors did not have what we have, regardless of where we stand on different issues. Our ancestors didn't have access to the Western Wall. Our ancestors didn't have access to the Jewish state. Our ancestors didn't have the privilege that we have to grow up in Western society the way we're growing up. They didn't have that. Think of how incredibly energizing this description is. And I'm not saying that that's what Ramban's methodology was to be this great uh, Jewish educator to inspire. But if I'm a, a Jewish person going through the Middle Ages, and I don't know what the end of the story is, and I'm not saying we're at the end of the story, but I certainly don't know 2022. That's a, a really endearing promise. That's a really comforting promise is probably the better word. But it's a promise. Right? That's what means. It's that we will not become assimilated. We'll have our own distinct way of being. It's a promise. Rabbi Ovadia uh, uh, Ben Sfarno, the, aka Sfarno, who lived a few hundred years later, 15th century to mid 16th century, he has, a, he has a, a different, or actually a very similar, I should say, analysis, also viewing this as a promise. He says, what does it mean? And that's the, the reality. The final analysis, they are the only people who will eventually populate the earth, right? This is what he views. He says that Israel is going to remain independent and it's not going to integrate. It's going to, they're going to be fine. The Jewish people at the end of the day, right, eschatologically, and I don't understand this well enough, but I'm at least describing this parshan, that this verse, when Bilam is looking at the Jewish people, and he is, has the voice of God, right, going through him, that that's what it means, that just as right now they are alone, they will, at the end of the day, at the end of times, they're going to be okay, they're going to be alone, it's a promise. But then modernity kicked in, and we have different approaches. Two approaches that I want to share with you. If I shared the promise approach, which is the approach of Ramban, the approach of Sepharno, is Shadal. Have, if you've heard of the Shadal, I love the Shadal. I've really gotten into the Shadal over the last couple of years. Um, I had heard his name, Shmuel David Lutzato, over the years. But over the last couple of years, I've been diving deeply into the Shadal. And what I've been doing is every single Shabbat, before Shabbat, I learn all of the Shadal's commentary um, and on, 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 uh, on the Parshat HaShavuot. I love it. 
I love it. So anyone who lives near me knows that if they're going to get a drasha, they're going to be hearing something for Shaddal. The Shaddal, I think, is um, he was related to either the great, 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 great grandson of the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzata, or the great, 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 I don't know, something that related. Um, and I think um, his great, great grandson or someone who's related to Shadal is uh, LaGuardia, as in LaGuardia Airport. I think he was the mayor of New York at some point. Uh, so very interesting story of the Shadal. He says, no, the Pasuk Hain on is not so much a promise, it's more of a challenge. It's kind of like an if-then thing. So he says, they're different. They're not reckoned amongst everyone because they don't have that land. What it means is that the Jewish people will live in a manner that's different from the non-Jewish people, and they they, they they won't deviate from that path. And as a result, if it is the case that the Jewish people are going to live in a way that's distinct and unique and is Jewish, whatever that means, and, and fill in the sentence, then the result of that is it's a challenge. God will stand by his people and give success. And what Shadal is speaking to is this very big challenge that exists within modernity. Once there is, the Jewish people are integrated into society, whether that's the different proclamations of emancipation, whether it's the French Revolution, whatever it is, the Jewish people are integrated. Okay, but now how do you be modern? How do you behave? And so it was interpreted in a way that was, if you're going to be successful, you have to be and you have to and then you'll be successful. That's the Shadal's perspective. The fourth perspective is similar to that. It's not so much of a challenge. It's more of a demand. And the demand, this is coming from the Nitziv or Nitziv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda of Berlin, who lived in the 19th century, 1816 to 1893, who was the, he was the principal, he was the Rosh Yeshiva of Velazh the famed Velazh Yeshiva. I've been there. Um, it's very, very exciting to go there um, and to, to see, to know all of the Torah that was learned there. And the Haim Akdavar, the Nitziv, says, no, this, this is a demand. And the demand looks like this. When the Jewish people it, it, it attempt to imitate the non-Jewish way of life, the reality is, the non-Jewish people are not going to accept them. So his demand is, the demand is, if you remain a lonely nation, you will dwell. You will be fine. But if you try to be amongst the nations, you will, it will not be reckoned. Lo And it's very interesting because lo is, I think the Chamalibovitz points this out, is what's called a hapax legomenon. I am sure I mispronounced that word. It is a Latin phrase, which means Yitchashav is a word that appears once in the text. It's not a word that appears at other points in time in the Torah. So this is what the Nitzim is pointing out. What does it mean that we're a nation that dwells alone? Not like all other nations and cultures, that when they go, when they try to mingle, it works. It won't work. You're not going to be more accepted. And we're 
hold on to that. So those are the different theological, we could call them exegetical approaches to this verse. And very interesting, as someone who has been a teacher of Tanakh for many years, I like this stuff. I really do. It's fun. It's engaging. There's so many different implications. And we could just spend the next hour going through this. But as is my way, I don't want to. I want to go on to issue number two. And we'll do Q&A later. And again, view me as, as a chavruta in this, not as some you know scholar on the topic that we could have. But let's have a conversation on it. Okay. That's the theological. That's the exegetical. Now I want to go into what I'm calling inyane dioma and descriptive. So who are we? Are we a people? Are we a religion? Are we a race? Are we an ethnicity? Are we a culture? So this is a really difficult question. Whoopi Goldberg gave us a lot to think about recently when she had her, her moment. And I'm not here to debate. Blah, 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 blah. Again, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, I am interested in just you, viewing this pasuk descriptively. What are we? Are we so different? Like if I said to you, what is Christianity? I think everyone here would raise their hand and say it's a religion that developed, you know, the belief in Jesus or whatever it is. And that's Christianity it developed over time. It's a religion. It's just a simple answer. It's a religion. Like it, don't like it, learn from it, don't like it, whatever you want. But it's a religion, right? Got it. What is Islam? It's a religion. It's a religion. It's a religion that you know is trying to um, to uh, incredibly monotheistic, believing in Allah, one one God. Uh, got it. That's that's Islam. What does it mean to be French? I think all of us will be like, okay, I I got the answer. I know what the answer is. I know what it means to be French. It's to be from France, to have French heritage, to be part of the French people. That's what it means to be French. But when Americans say religion, when describing the Jewish people, that was already confusing, we're combining a few different ideas. We're lumping together religion, culture, and nationality. And each of these are incredibly difficult to define. But broadly speaking, and this is a script that I'm working on right now that I'm really um, thinking about, religion is connected to beliefs and often rituals as well. So what are your beliefs in God? How do you pray? Nationality is about being born into a group, sharing ethnicity, following the same laws. Culture has to do with day-to-day -day activities, what you eat, right? How you dress, what you watch. That's culture. So what is the Jewish people? What does it mean to be? And that, when I think of that pasuk, it's really difficult to define us. And I'll give you an example of why this is so challenging. I'm going right into the meat right now. Some difficulties here. Look at this. A great example. In the Palestinian National Charter, Article 20, it describes Judaism. I'm going to read it for you. The Balfour Declaration, the mandate for Palestine, and everything that has been based upon them are deemed null and void. Claims of historical or religious ties of Jews of Palestine are incompatible with the facts of history and the true conception of what constitutes statehood. Judaism being a religion is not an independent nationality, nor do, nor do Jews constitute a single nation with an identity of its own. They're citizens of the states to which they belong. Hmm. So when others are defining Judaism for us, it's a religion. But that's really confusing. 
Are we just a religion? Why is it so difficult? The defining the Jewish people is so distinct from anything else. And there's a there's this comedian that I've been watching recently and reading about recently. His name is David Badiel. I probably mispronounced his name. I don't know if you've heard of him. But he was asked to opine on the Whoopi Goldberg. He wrote a book called Jews Don't Count. And he was asked to opine on the Whoopi Goldberg situation. Again, and I am not interested in, you know, getting into, you know, the cancel culture, any of those topics. I'm going to stay far away from that. But I want you to just listen to what David Badiel is talking about with, you know, defining himself. This final comment before the show's producers began playing music as a cue to go to the commercials. But these are two white groups of people. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It's each other. it's the problem. Thing. The problem with it is uh, there's an, so many issues. I'm not yes. a fan of Whoopi Goldberg. I've always been a fan of her, uh, but there are so many issues. What she's saying it does reveal an awful lot about the confusions that people have around anti-Semitism that are explored in my book. And the principal, one of the principal things going on here is the resistance to the idea that anti-Semitism is racism. And I think, what does Whoopi Goldberg think it is? Well, I think what a lot of people think it is is religious intolerance. And the problem with that is. I'm an atheist and the Gestapo would have shot me tomorrow. My great uncle Arno, who died in the Warsaw Ghetto, was not an observant Jew. And indeed, it's not just the the, the Holocaust. Now, neo-Nazis marching with torches saying the Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville. They would not ask a Jew whether he kept kosher before they set light to their house. They're not interested in faith. And the Nazis are not interested in faith. They were interested in racial purity. That's what the laws, the Nuremberg laws, they were racial purity laws. But that, that comment suggests that there are people who think racism is only about the colour of your skin. Yeah, no, that's true. And there's a specific thing that I think is going on here, which is, you know, Jews and the whiteness of Jews is a very complex thing. I use this phrase in the book, it's a bit early for this, but anyway, called Schrodinger's white. So what I mean by that is... So I don't want to watch more of it, but the idea here is David Adil is talking about, wait a second, it's very difficult to define us. It, meaning I'm, I'm trying to be descriptive here. When I look at the, the Pasuk, well, there, there's something unique about the Jewish disposition that it's not merely a religion, no matter how other people want to define it for us, for the Jewish people, it is, we're distinct. It's, and it's really complicated. And I actually, I, I don't, I don't fault people for that. It's really complicated. I, I could ask if I go to a, what's called man on the street and like go outside and start asking people what's Judaism, I'm telling you, I'm going to get different answers. Very, very, very different answers. We, we have a distinct way um, to even describe who we are. I have my own answers to that, but I'm not interested in giving those answers right now. I'm interested in just talking about how the very description from Bilam, from God, is descriptive of how distinct and unique the position of what it means to be a Jew really is. But then it's not just, it's not just in Yane de Yoma, it's not just descriptive. It's, it's actually a totally different issue. It's a it's an issue that Israel has had to deal with. And Samantha Power in 2016 gives a description of what it's like for Israel feeling this issue of Hain This vote for us was not straightforward because of where it is taking place at the United Nations. For the simple truth is that for as long as Israel has been a member of this institution, 
Israel has been treated differently from other nations at the United Nations. And not only in decades past, such as the infamous resolution that the General Assembly adopted in 1975 with the support of the majority of member states officially determining that Zionism is a form of racism, but also in 2016, this year, one need only look at the 18 resolutions against Israel adopted during the UN General Assembly in September or the 12 Israel-specific resolutions adopted this year in the Human Rights Council, more than those focused on Syria, North Korea, Iran, and South Sudan put together. To see that in 2016, so Israel this vote this for is, us was not. This is what's going on there is this general feeling that Israel is just treated differently. It's a nation that dwells alone. And it's not just Samantha Power that feels this way or Nikki Haley who feels this way. Golda Meir famously, who just, I think describes herself as an atheistic liberal socialist leader said, we have referred to the United Nations, we have no family there. Israel is entirely alone. There it is, that existential reality, Israel's entirely alone. But why should that be? And it's, and it's particularly devastating because there was a great debate when Zionism was being established between Herzl and Jabotinsky. And the question is, would the problem of anti-Semitism be solved by Zionism, by the creation of a Jewish state? Herzl believed, or Jewish national homeland, Herzl believed that a Jewish national homeland would end anti-Semitism, period. It would cure anti-Semitism. Because once the Jewish people aren't these ghosts anymore, different than everyone else, different, separate, the nations of the world will treat them like anyone else. Jabotinsky, who really viewed himself as a disciple of Herzl, he didn't say this, but he, I think he felt it. He said, no, a Jewish national homeland wouldn't cure anti-Semitism, wouldn't end anti-Semitism. The verb is different. It would protect against anti-Semitism. The way he would, in my articulation of this, the reality is they, we would always be a nation that dwells alone. And that's the reality. He viewed Herzl's idea as naive, as really naive. And then in 1975, when the Zionism is racism, um, UNGA said that Zionism is racism on November 10th, 1975, determines that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. Well, this had a massive impact. And guess what verse was, became the most prominent verse? Well, let's listen to, let's listen to uh, Chaim Herzog, who was Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations at this time when this was passed in 1975, UN Resolution 3379. It is symbolic that this debate, which, which may well prove to be a turning point in the fortunes of the United Nations, and the decisive factor as to the possible continued existence of this organization should take place on November 10th. Tonight, 37 years ago, has gone down in history as Kristallnacht, or the Night of the Crystals. This was the night on the 10th of November, 1938, when Hitler's Nazi stormtroopers launched a coordinated attack on the Jewish community in Germany, burnt the synagogues in all the cities and made bonfires in the streets of the holy books 
and the scrolls of the Holy Law and the Bible. It was the night when Jewish homes were attacked and heads of families were taken away, many of them never to return. And very, I think right around that time, a new book was, was written, A People That Dwells Alone, um, about this very issue, about this very topic. It, was, it is symbolic. And I won't share this video, but this is a Daniel Patrick Moynihan's reaction to it. Let me just skip through this. Um, but it's his reaction to Zionism not being racism. And Yossi Klein Alevi, what I want to share with you is the reaction that the Jewish people, specifically the state of Israel, how they reacted to this. Because this in many ways was what Yossi Klein Alevi describes as a death blow to secular Zionism. When people ask what really launched the settler movement, um, people typically think it was 1967, right when that happened. But what really happened was while the labor government was in place, something else happened, which is November 10th, 1975, 72 to 35 with 32 abstentions, they declared Zionism as a form of racism. Well, this resolution, which was initiated by the Arab nations and endorsed by the Soviet Muslim blocs, what was the reaction to it? Yassi Klein Alevi says it like this. My mom would never let me say this word. So I'm, I'm reading it. So I'm not saying, I'm just reading it. Okay. Um, my mom would let me say this. Goyim were acting like Goyim. Now Jews needed to act like Jews, which is embrace their unavoidable uniqueness and fulfill their redemptive destiny. The world be damned. Increased settlement in all parts of the land is the only answer to the UN resolution, Gush Emunim declared. And many Israelis now agreed. Because the idea was, Herzl, you got it all wrong. Secular Zionism is all wrong. The reality is, we're never going to be reckoned amongst everyone else. We have to treat ourselves as an as a nation that dwells alone. Because you know what? They're treating us like that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to show you just how Zionist we can be. What happened a few years later? This. This is a picture of a nuclear reactor in 1981 being destroyed. Where was this? This is OC Rock. It was called Operation Opera. And the world condemned Israel for this preemptive strike. And what do you think Menachem Begin said? Menachem Begin said, we are alone. And guess what? I'll share a personal secret with you. Whenever I have to choose between saving the lives of our children or getting the approval of the Security Council and all those fair weather friends, we are an Amlevadad Yishkon. I much prefer the former. Because I know that I have to take care of myself, says Menachem Begin. And thus the Begin Doctrine was created. And then a reversal happened 13 years later. Yitzhak Rabin also talking about this verse. Said we have to stop with this way of thinking. We, have, we can have peace. We got it. We are now witnessing, he said in 1994, a new wind blowing throughout the world regarding its relationship with the state of Israel. The claim that the whole world is against us, has dissipated in the spirit of peace. The world is not against us. The world is with us. That's what Rabin saw. That's what he believed in. That's the reality, said Rabin. You see how this verse, how this pasuk has animated the Jewish collective. I think in many ways, more than any other pasuk. How we view this pasuk. Is it descriptive? Is it a curse? Is it a blessing? Is it a promise? Is it a challenge? Is it a demand? What is it? And we interpret it differently. But Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory, I want to show you just how complicated this is within our own psyche. When I came across this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is, a, this is just such an unbelievable articulation. 
So there was a UN conference against racism at Durban in 2001. Didn't go very well for Israel. And Rabbi Sachs said, we had reasons to know that it was going to be a disaster for Israel. It was there in the parallel sessions of the NGOs that Israel was accused of the five cardinal sins against human rights, racism, apartheid, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and attempted genocide. The conference became, in effect, the launch pad of a new and vicious anti-Semitism. In the Middle Ages, Jews were hated because of their religion. In the 19th and early 20th century, they were hated because of their race. In the 21st century, they're hated because of their nation state. What do you think he's going to quote? As we were speaking of the likely outcome, the diplomat heaved a sigh and said, "'Twas ever thus, am we are a nation fated to be alone." And yet, in 2009, I found this in his book, Future Tense, listen to a totally different perspective from the same person. He says, Rabbi Sachs, there is the psychological phenomenon I said of the self-fulfilling prophecy that I concluded was a perennial Jewish danger. If you define yourself as a people that dwells alone, that will be your fate. A totally different articulation of the same pasuk. You will convince yourself that you have no friends. You are isolated. No one understands you. The world hates you. Your efforts at self-explanation will be self will be half-hearted. Your expectations of winning allies will be low. You will not invest as much effort as others do to make your case in the audience chamber of the world. For inwardly, you are not. You are convinced that all efforts will fail. You have, will have decided that this is the Jewish fate that nothing can change. It was ever thus and always will be. If you believe your fate is to be alone, says Rabbi Sachs, that is almost certainly what will happen. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Why bother not make why bother make friends and allies if you know in advance that you will fail? Jews have enemies, but we also have friends. And if we worked harder at it, we would have more. That's Rabbi Sachs. One last idea from Rabbi Sachs, and he says it like in a poetic way. He says, Yes, it's a halakha, meaning not a halakha, but it's, a, it's an inescapable truth. The ace of sonet Yaakov. That mace of, and then he says in Rabbi Saxian way, ace of may hate Yaakov. It does not follow that Yaakov should hate Yaakov. That does not do what anyone should take from this. To answer hate with hate is to be dragged down to the level of your opponent. When in the course of a television program, I asked Judah Pearl, father of the murdered journalist Daniel Pearl, why he was working for reconciliation between Jews and Muslims. He replied with heartbreaking lucidity, hate killed my son. Therefore, I am determined to fight hate. As Martin Luther King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so I want to end with a thought. You know what? Let me actually have it because I, I love this so much. Give me a second here. I have this in my office because people who know me know how much I love this quote. Rav Avram Cohen Cook said, the purely righteous do not complain of the dark, but increase the light. They do not complain of evil, but increase justice. They do not complain of heresy, but increase faith. They do not complain of ignorance, but increase wisdom. And so I want to conclude with that thought right there of Rav Cook, those thoughts of Rabbi Sachs, and say, there are so many different ways we can interpret the Pasuk, I said them already, whether it's a promise, a demand, a challenge. The reality is that throughout history, and specifically in the last hundred years or so, this very question is what animated the Jewish collective. And regardless of whether or not it is true or it is factual or it's not factual, the way I want to encourage each and every one of us to be thinking is that, yes, we should never be naive. We should never think that anti-Semitism will totally disappear. We, we shouldn't be naive, but we should work 
towards that. We should have a relationship with others that we are loving towards them, not in a naive way. Be smart, be pragmatic, be aware, but in a way that says, hey, let's bring more righteousness. Let's bring more light. Let's bring more justice. Let's bring more faith. And that's what we're going to be able to do. And that's what I'm hoping to leave everyone with. To me, in my last five years of living, this is the Pasuk that gets me thinking the most. So I now want to open it to Q&A. I think Yigal Amir answered Rabbi by saying, yeah, we have to remain a people apart because what you, what you uh, are prescribing will be the end of Israel. Meaning you're saying, Judy... You're saying that tell tell me what tell me what the question is within that like meaning that with like there was a naivete to Yitzhak Rabin. No, it's it's uh, he was willing to take a chance. He was willing to risk, and Amir said that is unacceptable. What I have been taught, and the people who who um, coached him oh. said that this is this is this is a, the destruction of Israel to not re- remain apart to interact, to take the risk and be vulnerable is going to be our end. Right. So that we have to say isolation is the only way to preserve Judaism. Yep. Right. That, that could be, that could be, you know, again, like I'm not, uh, I, I'm not so sure I, I have a podcast on the topic of Yitzhak Rabbi's assassination, which I encourage all of you to look at and, and unpacking Israeli history, the podcast, and go into a lot of these sorts of topics. Uh, and it's a difficult one with what happened there, um, how it divided Israeli society. It's a massive question, but there, there's something to say for your point there about um, whether or not the, the, that there was this instinctive uh, distrust and mistrust of others. And there could have been good reasons, by the way, that, you know, to to um, to not for Yigal Amir to do that. Let's be very, 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 very clear about that. But there could be good reasons for why people were distrustful, unsure. Like if you look at the history surrounding 93, 94, 95, it was a complicated time. So I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be like, I wanna like, I wanna just use that puzzle to look at how Yitzhak Rabin really viewed, said, no, guys, let's not, let's not imagine that this Pusak has to define us. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not ontological in that way. It is possible. And again, without getting into politics, look at the Abraham Accords and consider that it is possible for many, 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 many peoples to develop relationships with Israel. So maybe we're not always going to be um, an Am Levadad Yishkon. Maybe that's, maybe that's the case. Shira, you have a question? Um, I just want to, first of all, I wonder how you integrate this um, uh, verse uh, into Israel studies in uh, in schools. I'm assuming in schools, right? The the content that I lead is actually for Amchat for everyone. It's on YouTube. It's on Unpack. It's on TikTok. It's on Instagram. Um, it's on uh, uh, on podcasts. So we want right. to make content for everyone. And then we also make lesson plans um, on Unpack.education where you can find lesson plans. And absolutely, I think this this lesson of asking initially exegetically and theologically what the implication of this is. And this is another thing I think about a lot, which is what comes first. Is it people's disposition and then reading that into the verse? Or is it the verse that is read either in a um, 
either in a vacuum or is it read in a, in a textual way, in a semantics and picking apart the words? And then we say, oh, this is what it means. Always a big question in the world of Jewish thought. But continue, Shira. Yeah, um, specifically, I was asking uh, because I know that the, the, the studying of Israel in schools is, a, I want to say, it's not a very coherent a field like there are many uh, ideas, ma many ideologies, many <laughs> many uh, working on practical, then going into the ideological and philosophical before you start. You know, teaching about Israel, it's very complicated. Uh, yeah. That's one. So I think this verse is is a fantastic way to um, to to pull the you know the discussion or to write a curriculum or whatever based on this you know, verse and this question, that's one. So thank you for that, it's very illuminating. And secondly, the one verse that I always thought when you talked about the United Nation is that they say, it's like, uh, it means that all the nation hates each other and everybody hates Israel altogether. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, it come it came into my mind. And the yeah. the last thing I wanted to say is that it's uh, as I understand, this was said by Bilam, right? So this is a perspective of an outsider. So right. I want to believe I want to believe that. Uh, at the very beginning, we were you know Judaism is universal. The Torah is universal. And we had our, you know, our, uh, the Bnei Israel had our role to kind of, you know, keep the, the, the good positive message. But at some point, somebody looked at us <laughs> in, a, right. in a very, you know, excluding way, but it wasn't meant to be our own perspective, if, if you know what I mean. It's a perspective yeah. on outsider that was reflecting on us. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah, I was just looking, I, as you were talking, I was looking for, there's a, um, for a commentary on this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it, but um, yeah, I, I, I the, the, it is certainly from the perspective, Bilam is speaking from the perspective of an in, outsider, which is incredibly interesting. It is the case, I think, from my understanding of it, is that this is, nevertheless, um, this is some sort of either Ruach HaKodesh or Nevoah, um, from a from a from a biblical perspective, so you know this is it's certainly an outsider coming in, but this is this is a this is a nouveau. Um, oh, so, okay. So okay. that's 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 you know it is an outsider though, and I think it's a very interesting description. But the Talmud does say about Bilam that his nouveau was on par with with Moses, so um, <laughs> that's something to be aware of. Uh, Lauren, yeah, I think our history tells us that we dwell alone, whether we want to or not. You know, um, German Jews, very assimilated. That really didn't work out, it didn't help. Um, I remember my, my dad was a Holocaust survivor and he was from Krakow and we were from Krakow for generations. And, you know, he said like, who could think that this would happen despite Polish anti-Semitism? Who would think this would happen when the families lived there for so long? You don't expect it. And, you know, I really wonder about our future. I think I've said it in here before. You know, we're, we're accepted in North America, but we're seeing such an increase in anti-Semitism. Yeah. And I, I, I always wonder, eh, how much longer are we going to be accepted here? 
you know? So, I mean, because it's, it's almost over in France and Belgium and a lot of other places. So yeah. I think we never, we, we are really a people alone. It's not a great thing to be, but that's the way it's been. So I want to say on that, just to be, um, as is my way to try to be um, optimistic a little bit, while it is the case that in the United States of America, there are, there are real um, scary signs of anti-Semitism. And, and, and I think it's important to not merely look at it as uh, religious intolerance. I think that kind of limits the, the seriousness of the issue. Uh, that it's much more serious than that. And I also like think we live in a remarkable country that regardless of politics, it's been a good Jewish, it's been a good experience overall. Um, you know, I, what one of the things that I find interesting um, that I'm reflective of is I never taught about, this, I just find this really interesting. And it's like, I want to do tshuva for this. For, um, for many years, I, I taught Holocaust education Israel education, Jewish philosophy, all this stuff. I never really spent time on anti-Semitism education. Um, I never really spent time in the Jewish day school, like really focused on where this is coming from, what the background is, what's the origin. And when I got into this role, I was in a very modern Orthodox landscape is where I was coming from. I was like, we're good. Like I walk around, you don't see, but I've got my kippah, right? Like I walk around and I'm not afraid of anything. I'm good. But you know what? I've lived in Baltimore. I've lived in New York. lived in LA. lived in South Florida. Like, whatever. I, I, I'm fine. I'm good. But I met with somebody who went to university um, in, in San Francisco somewhere. And um, at this, I remember this three and a half years ago. And he was telling me how awful anti-Semitism is. And he's this person is not a keep-a-wearing Jew. This person isn't. They, they, they wear like their Magen David, um, like that's their, but do, doesn't do Shabbat, doesn't do kosher, doesn't do a lot of things that I do, doesn't like do Shabbat, like whatever the things are. And I feel like I'm this like uber Jewish guy out there and I'm like, anti-Semitism, what are you talking about? I don't want to experience that. Look, we're at a, this cafe right now. Is anyone saying anything? That's like, life's good. He looked at me so offended, so hurt by me um, that I really didn't understand what he was going through, that I didn't have empathy for his experience. And it radically, radically shifted my perspective on this. Because for whatever reason, where I live and how I live, thank God I don't experience it. But for so many people, for so many young people, they do feel this isolation. And I just think that we have to pay attention to it on the one hand. And also on the other hand, like really acknowledge both that we live in a wonderful, wonderful country. Um, that uh, regardless of politics, like things are pretty good for us. So it's, I, I live with that tension in mind and I live with that dialectic. Um, and I also think about this Pasuk, I think it, it, it is okay. And like, I don't know, I did, if we spent like more hours, many more hours together, I, like I'd want to ask each and every one of you, do you view this as a promise? Do you view this as, as an ontological reality? Do you view this as a demand? Like Nitziv was saying, like, or, or a challenge, like Shadal was saying, like there's so many different ways that we could view this pasuk. And I, I would ask this, you know, Shabbat's coming up. Shabbat's always coming up, right? Shabbat's coming up. And I don't know, ask, ask your family. Um, how do they view this? How do they think about this? Um, because it says so much, I think, about our, uh, how we view the outside world. Um, 
But again, regardless of what it means about us, it doesn't mean that Yaakov sone et Esav, no matter what, it's that, like we should never, that's like, we should never live a life of Yaakov sone et, et Esav. Uh, that is not, that is, that is a teaching from Rabbi Sachs that I, that I want to make sure that we all live by. If I could just add one thing is that because there's been so much anti-Semitism and been reading a lot of like really excellent articles, The Atlantic, other places, a lot of it is involved with basically conspiracy theory. And it has uh, been forever. Middle Ages, you know, the Jews were all powerful, poils, poised in the wells. The Jews are rich, they're all powerful. I want to know where I can get my space laser. I think it would be fun. Um, it, it's just, it's insane. But it's all a conspiracy-based thing. So it's irrational. And it's really, really hard to break. And one other thing is just, with the changes, I live in Toronto, great Jewish community, got about 180,000 Jews here. York University, which when it started in the 70s, was called Jew U, right? Even, even the Chagim and all the Chagim, the school was closed because there were so many Jewish students and faculty. Now it's one of the worst places of anti-Semitism in all of North America. And yeah. it's painful and difficult for Jewish students there. They face daily hatred. So Lauren, I, 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 I'm gonna recommend you go to our YouTube channel and watch the, if you heard, have you heard of Yair ya Rosenberg? So Yair Rosenberg who writes for the Atlantic wrote a six part series with us at Unpacked on the whole the whole gestalt of anti-Semitism, six part series, check it out. It's got it's got that Thank all. Thank you. Um, and I think it should be, should be helpful, so. Anyone else in the room have a question? I just want to say from a perspective of an Israeli, you ask whether it is a, a statement or a, a descri describing a, a situation or condition or, uh, or whether it's, um, it's something, you know, a belief. I think as an Israeli, I grew, I grew up as believing this is a, you know, this is, the, it is, this is reality. But coming to the United States, it, 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 I kind of educated myself that th things can be different. But I think as long as we are in the political realm, like whenever, that's what Zionism was all about, being in the political realm. So I know Ben-Gurion wanted us to be, you know, to get our political uh, entity as a, as a nation and be among other nations. Uh, so as long as we, are, this is the, the everlasting tension between, you know, the Jewish people trying to get sovereignty and political uh, uh, power, you know, versus right. just being people, you know, of the book or intellectual or philosopher, philosopher or whatever we are. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. So as an Israeli, I think, unfortunately, it, it, it goes towards reality. Oh. Hello. Sorry, my, my, my daughter. Marisa, your daughter. <laughs> so it's good timing, I guess. Um, thank you for that note, Shira. And uh, Pam or Shmuley, thank you so much for having me on and for, for learning together, everyone. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Weissman. This was wonderful. We really appreciate your time and it was an honor to learn with you. Um, and we appreciate Temple Kai being our co-sponsor and having all of you here today. We hope you'll join us again. We are teaching with Dr. John Greenberg tomorrow at 3 p.m. Um, Mountain Standard Time and next week with Professor Doug Weiss. Have a great day, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Very good. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.